0: So Mike, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, very glad to be here. Yeah, so full disclosure, we used to work together yes. at the Oregonian. I worked there for a, just about a year, and so I kind of wanted to start there and, see, you know, You've been at the Oregonian for about 12, 13 years, is that right? Yeah, just about exactly 13 years, maybe even 13 years today. Oh, wow. Okay. And so you're the business writer for them now. So when you tell me about when you started, kind of have you always been on the business side? or
1: Yeah, I started out in community journalism, you know, really small town papers. And the first daily I worked for, they needed a business writer. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I got interested in it. Uh, worked uh, in Vancouver, Washington, at the Columbian newspaper, covering the chip and telecom industries, which were growing there rapidly at the time. Took a couple years off and went to business school at the University of Washington, got an MBA, and then came back to Portland for the Oregonian, and I've been there since 2004.
0: Wow, well, no, it's changed a lot. So we'll, we'll get into that and kind of how it's changed Portland business. But um, you know, we were talking a little uh, bit of, uh, before this about just the state of journalism and kind of more the business model of it. So you've kind of seen it it shift. Uh, So we'd love to get your perspectives just as, you know, things, the consumer behavior is changing, um, business models, everybody's kind of trying to figure it out. So, I mean. Well, it's amazing how much has changed. I,
1: I started out, you know, working at small town newspapers. We were literally laying out the paper by hand, you know, using line tape and wax uh, laying the the pages on on sheets. And now, obviously, the majority of the stuff that we write that gets read, gets read online. And you know, I, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism that national publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, that those organizations have figured out a model that can work for them, that people will pay for that kind of journalism. And I, I think It's clear that there's an audience for that and that you can make money on it. I think it's clear that philanthropy will support large-scale investigative journalism and political interests will support partisan large-scale investigative journalism. What's not clear yet is whether there's a model out there for local and and regional journalism. You know, there there were two tracks. Uh, Obviously, everyone knows as the internet emerged, everyone said, okay, well, we'll put everything online for free. After a period of time, many people decided that didn't work. The national organizations have found that selling digital subscriptions works for them. They can build a very large audience that way. It hasn't worked yet for regional papers. If I'd been doing it, I would have done it like the Seattle Times did, start to put it behind a paywall, a sort of a, a, a pay meter, they call it now, where you, pay, you get a certain number of articles free each month. It's turned out that hasn't, worked well for them it appears it's not generating enough revenue the times for example the seattle times for example had a bunch of layoffs at the end of last year their newsroom continues to shrink our model though we've you know, we continue to put everything online for free and we don't even deliver the paper seven days a week anymore that doesn't appear to be working either um you know our, our newsroom continues to shrink there probably is a point at which it can work you can see that large organizations like buzzfeed succeed by giving away their their reporting online but they have relatively small staffs and a huge national audience it's not clear that'll work in local journalism you know i I think the best hope maybe is some kind of hybrid public private public private um, non-profit for-profit model where the cost center, the newsroom is underwritten by nonprofit organizations. And then the for-profit side, you know, the newspaper, the website have to find a way to make money off of that. I think if you take the newsroom out of the cost center and find another way of paying your journalists,
0: you know, it might yet be possible. Yeah. And despite all that, it's like, Good journalism is needed more than ever, right? Yeah. And people are hungry for it. There, I think there's no question that
1: there's an appetite for it. As you know, our audience is genuinely enormous online. Uh, you know, even though our circulation is much lower than it used to be, our readership is much, much higher than it ever has been. People are very hungry for national journalism. They're very interested in local news. The trick is just finding a way to pay for that local
0: news. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, you're not alone. <laughs> you know, you're in this boat with everybody else trying to figure it out. But yes. um, we'll kind of see where it goes. You know, Portland-wise, you've been covering, you know, the business climate here a lot. And, you know, uh, this is an executive podcast, so I've, I've interviewed some other folks. And one of the questions came up to ask you is, you know, how do you view your role as a business reporter and portland and so it, it, I know it's a kind of a balance right you, you want to be this cheerleader of Portland and the new companies but also hold companies accountable so how do you kind of strike that balance well so,
1: I, I, i'm not worried about the cheerleader side you know i 'm covering businesses and I figure they have marketing budgets they can yeah. they can you know they can toot their own horn I, I have two goals really one the main goal is just to tell the community what 's going on I, th- I think business is at least as important as government um, And perhaps in some ways, business reporting is more important because at least, you know, government, there's elections, there's direct accountability. Business, uh, you know, affects the community quite directly in terms of the people it employs, the way a community is physically built. And so I I think we have to tell the story of how businesses are operating, what businesses are in town, what they're doing, what's changing, how they're interacting with the public sector, um, things like that. And, and as a component of that, I'd say there's that larger narrative. That's the first draft of history narrative. A component of that has to be accountability journalism. Uh, so when a company has a large layoff and tries to keep it secret, like Intel did two years ago, or a company called SureID out in Hillsborough has had this spring, you know, it's our job to report that. Um, when there's misconduct by business officials, we have to report that too. There's no one else out there to tell that story. So so those are sort of the twin threads, and they're they're closely interlaced but but the one is is the narrative of what's happening in the community, and the second is accountability journalism
0: yeah, and so having that role, how has it been working with companies
1: here you know it it's interesting uh you know large companies are less and less interested in telling their story locally you know, as one byproduct of you know the the digital audience is that People can reach their customers and their employees directly. They don't need a newspaper to interface with them. So they can tell their story directly. They have less and less interest in talking to us. So Intel, Nike, you know, not a lot to to talk with us. Uh Intel hasn't worked on me worked with me on a story in 18 months. They'll they'll respond briefly to an email, but that's all I can get out of them these days. On the other hand, that hasn't impacted my reporting any on them because there's 19,000 intel employees in oregon and they're very happy to describe their experiences there so i don't necessarily need to talk to the the pr organization to be able to tell the story the smaller companies they don't have a pr organization they don't have you know one of the ways they build credibility is through the local press uh, or any press at all and so i'm interested in them to the extent that they tell the first part of the story the community narrative or the second part of the story you know if there's some accountability role or you know civic work that some of them are engaged in there you know for instance the company that was globe sherpa is now moval you know they created the trimet ticketing app the mobile ticketing app that's really changed the way people get around portland i think or at least the way people pay for it and so that that part of the story I, i think is important we tell it's sort of a cultural impact uh but you know, to the extent that they're interesting, what they're doing has potential to
0: change the community. You know, startups. I'm I'm interested in, yeah. in covering them, and that's I feel like you've kind of carved your. I mean, I wouldn't say niche because you are reporting the whole business community, but maybe is it personally is that more gratifying for you to cover the startups or how you do know? You do? I,
1: I obviously you'd like to cover what's coming, yeah. uh, and it's a trick because you know I don't want to substitute my judgment for the readers. I but I have to, to a degree, because I'm the only one who has the time to go around and evaluate them. It's hard to pick out a startup and say this company is going to be successful, that company is going to be successful. You know, what metrics do you use? Who do you talk to to find out who you should or shouldn't be writing about? You know, I'll say for our last startup boom, which was began about ten years ago, I I probably wrote about some companies that I didn't have that that things didn't really get going with them. But I I'll say that I generally speaking I, I didn't miss the companies that were coming up the companies that i i wrote about you know during that time they generally did become impactful for the communities the the elemental technologies the urban airships the puppet labs now called puppet um uh, those companies did have a big impact you know some larger
0: impact than others yeah yeah and you know, so I know you wrote the story maybe about a month or two ago, and it was kind of evaluating the the tech scene. And you, I think the title was like, you know, it's cooling off. So, yeah. in one aspect, right, the state's in good shape as far as employment uh, and the percentage of people unemployed. But the tech scene, I don't, you know, it's trending on its own kind of level. So, what you know, what's going on with
1: I, that? I think you're exactly right on that. That's that. That's sort of a weird situation that we're in you know coming out of the Great Recession tech was really what was leading Oregon's economy back now our economy is, is about as good as it ever has been in Oregon uh, job growth is slow but very steady we're starting to see some growth in in wages and unemployment is the lowest on record at 3.6 percent at that same time tech job growth has flatlined it's not growing anymore and it's not Obvious why that is, but we can pull at some threads. One is that you know Intel eliminated you know probably a couple thousand jobs last year. They appear to have hired those back, but they're not growing the way they did uh three or four years ago locally you know they're they're roughly at about even keel from what I can tell they're very secretive about that, but that's my guess, and as the state's largest employer, what Intel does has a lot to do with that uh, Another factor is outposts um most of our large companies. Uh, homegrown companies, the Mentor Graphics, the FEIs, the Cascade Microtechs, TriQuint Semiconductors, they've all sold in the last couple of years. Now, it ha- hasn't resulted in a large slashing of a workforce, but once they become a satellite office, it's rare that they grow substantially after that. Uh, so sometimes companies will open a satellite office and it will grow, but when they make an acquisition, they're not usually buying it so that they can grow that site. They're buying to maintain. So I wouldn't look for a lot of growth at Mentor Graphics or FEI anymore. And we don't have any more large homegrown tech companies with the possible exception of FLIR thermal imaging company, whether you classify that as tech or not. Uh, it's it's a, it's a large company, but they're primarily a defense contractor. Uh, so that's another factor the the third factor if we say intel's one the second is is the sell off and that we've had the third probably is a real slowdown in the startup scene and venture funding is was down sharply last year it was down really sharply in the first quarter it's hard to tell from any one quarter you know we just we don't have a huge venture economy but it doesn't show signs of turning around and I think a couple things are responsible for that. One is that we don't have, uh, you know, we, we've we never had a big consumer-facing startup scene. So there's not a big opportunity to grow there. Uh, those are the companies that get really large. And so I think that maybe puts a ceiling on our startup scene. And maybe outside of Oregon, people have, as a result, lost interest a little bit in investing in this market because they see us as as filling more niches uh that you know the big home run company just isn't likely to come from portland and you think about it why would you have a company why would you try and do that here if you really wanted a big home run company you know we're cheaper than seattle or the silicon valley but we're not as cheap as we used to be it's not a bargain here anymore you don't have the huge workforce you can draw from You don't have the pool of local money you can draw from. So I think that's another factor. And I think what we're likely to have now are sort of smaller scale startups for the indefinite future that you may thrive in their niches, but probably aren't going to be huge. Now, if you're Oregon or Portland, that's not necessarily terrible. You look at what Amazon has done to Seattle or the, the tech boom has done over the last 30 years to the Bay Area it's really distorted the local economies and we feel the pressures here certainly with rents and and congestion and traffic things like that but it's nothing on the scale of what's happened in seattle or the bay area so it might
0: be that slower growth is in some ways desirable and maybe we should accept that yeah yeah and you mentioned these outposts that are coming here and so one of the previous podcasts with uh, Jennifer Davis, she's the CMO of Planar, and she was talking about that, too, and how that kind of creates this vacuum of strategic leadership not being here and how that affects uh, kind of the, the, the business and disemployability. So
1: uh, they, they used to talk about a Portland threshold. Dave Hirsch, who was the former CEO of Jive Software, he talked about that. Well, we've got the Portland threshold. We just don't have the leadership experienced leadership to run a large organization and i think that's probably true even now to a degree it's better than it used to be but if you're looking to for example puppet uh you know has the potential to you know be a public company and do substantial revenues and valuation above a billion dollars those things are possible but they're not going to be able to pull from the local tech scene Uh, For people to do that because to run that company, because there just isn't anyone locally who's done it. You know, even Jive Software, when they went public, they'd moved their headquarters to to Palo Alto. So, Mm.
0: well, we'll see. I'm a big believer in Portland. (laughs) Someone's here. (laughs) And so we've talked about Portland. I grew up in the southern part of the state, Grants Pass. So, you know, the kind of perspective around the same issue now is there's Portland and then everybody else. Yes. But there's, you know, Good things happen in other states. So, are there any other kind of industries or businesses you're tracking that are, whether it's you know, obviously bend got something own thing going, but Southern Oregon's growing a lot too?
1: You, you know, I, I, I write some about the, the statewide economy. And I think, you know, one of the things we make the mistake of doing is judging Bend or Medford uh, or Eugene or Corvallis by Portland standards. And if we think, boy, you could have a really large, you know, or even a mid-sized tech company in any of those cities, it's not likely to happen because they're just, you know, Portland has its own work tech workforce problems. You, take te- you reduce the population by 90% and it's really exacerbated. So we're not going to have a large tech company in Bend. We're not going to have a large tech company in Eugene or Carvalis. It's not going to happen. But for those communities, you don't need it. You know, if you have a company that employs 200 people, in any of those communities, that's a substantial impact. That's a really big deal. And I think that sort of thing is a potential, or there is a potential for outposts. You know, the, the, the big example of this is Primeville, where Apple and Facebook have made enormous investments, billion-dollar investments, multi-billion-dollar investments in data centers there. They're not employing many people. In there. There's several dozen to, you know, a little over 100 uh, at each site. But in a city of 9,000 people, that's really something. And certainly, it's had a profound effect on the economy with the construction going on It's created its own little housing crisis in Prineville. And the construction, Facebook is about wrapped up, but Apple may continue to build for a while. They're building solar to go along with their uh, project with to, to power the data center there. So I think those sorts of things will continue to have impacts in smaller parts of the state. Amazon is. Massive data center complex in Morrow County, and then they're going in Hermiston and Umatilla too. These are, you know, the data centers again, not big employers, right. but they will have an impact on the communities. Have you toured one of those data centers? I've been in Facebook's many times. Yeah, uh, yeah. Apple and Amazon are very secretive about theirs. But sure, Facebook is very proud of theirs, and that they they're proud of it because they adopted what was at the time an unusual design, uh, took advantage of the local climate, the high desert climate. Uh, to cool it less expensively, that that sort of thing has become more standard in the data center industry now because they're all looking to keep their power costs down. Um, but they love to show it off, and it's fascinating. You know, it's just it's like a a giant Costco with <laughs> nobody in it and right. no lights, but a lot of wind because the air is blowing around wow. to keep the computers cool. It's
0: it's surreal. That's kind of eerie, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before this, you sent me a great list of companies to you know, um, here in Portland, maybe they're up and coming or interesting. So I want to get to that, but also a couple high profile things we want to talk about solar worlds. Um, don't know if you know what's going on with that late lately. It's an, um, you
1: know, it's, I think solar world would tell you, okay. So the backstory is that solar world's parent company in Germany filed for insolvency, a German equivalent of bankruptcy. Solar world USA is, appears to be a, largely separate entity but is facing the same competitive pressures to some degree their finances must be entwined after that uh solar world initially said that oh we're going to continue to operate but then they submitted a notice to the state that said oh we're going to lay off 500 people in july and maybe we'll shut down too Uh, i think they have 700 to 800 people working in their factory out there the state bet heavily on solar a, a decade ago uh and helped underwrite that facility there so solar world would tell you i think that they're pressing a trade case against china that if they have some success with that they could there could be duties on on chinese solar products and that might make their products more competitive they allege and i think there's a good deal of evidence that they're correct that china is essentially dumping its solar products on the u.s market the rest of the solar industry that the trick is that the rest of the solar industry the installers and energy providers, they love to have those cheap Chinese solar panels because they reduce their costs of installation. And so it's it's a tug of war within the industry. The Trump administration has not shown a lot of appetite to support the solar industry, although they've been very skeptical of Chinese trade. So it's hard to tell. But I think the bottom line is anything that's happened probably isn't imminent so there's going to be more turbulence and probably significant downsizing yeah. next month Cash
0: is tough it is yeah well and then of course the news came out yesterday or the day before about nike and yeah i mean two percent uh kind of reducing the workforce um so is that that's just more of a kind of in line with the restructuring yeah you know,
1: people it? have noted that you know every decade or so nike does this and they kind of restructure and reorient and you know two percent not a huge number, you know, compared to Intel's layoffs last year. That was fifteen thousand across a company of a hundred thousand people. That was you know one hundred and seven thousand people, but it was fourteen or fifteen percent of their workforce. That was a huge impact. Nike is is you know obviously for the people who get laid off, it's extremely unpleasant. But for the regional economy, it's probably not as big a deal. The thing to watch, though, is you know is is Nike taking the right course? They had been. My colleague Jeff Manning covers them and has written most about this. But he wrote last fall that, you know, a year, year and a half ago, Nike had really big eyes. They saw really great growth opportunities. And they feel felt in the last six to eight months more competitive pressure, I think, from Adidas and, and to a degree Under Armour. And so Adidas adopted this strategy that they're going to focus on these large cities, these large urban hubs around the world. And Nike pretty much adopted the same strategy yesterday. They said that's where 80% of our growth is going to come is from these dozen or so cities. To me, that's really interesting that now you can have a major, major global brand who says our growth is just going to come from a few affluent Relatively few affluent urban hubs it just shows you know the, the urbanization that we felt in this country is going on all over the world where pot, people and wealth
0: is concentrating in urban centers yeah, you know, and I was just at Nike and they're still building a lot yeah. a lot of uh, new uh, office space there, so
1: yeah I, I, I think it's important to say you know they, they are building a, a huge new campus you know across the street from their existing one it 's important to say this is not and it was true with Intel too. This is not a sign of a company in jeopardy or anything like that. With Intel, it was a major strategic realignment, major change in direction. But it wasn't the, the company was still in good financial shape. Nike is in a much better position even than that. They're in, you know their growth is not as strong as they'd hoped, but the business is is in relatively good
0: shape. And that campus won't the new campus won't sit empty. They'll, yeah. they'll they'll fill it. Yeah. So, um, get to this list of companies you, you sent me before. So, I don't know if you if you can go through them and some of the interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I you know I'll talk you know about our our business landscape in general. I think uh, I try to tell the story whenever I can. But what's going on at Intel in Hillsboro is really really significant, both for our economy and for technology generally. Every advance in computing is enabled by advances made by researchers uh, at Ronler Acres, Intel's campus near Hillsboro Stadium. You know they're working uh, to push the boundaries of physics to improve computing performance. And Intel hasn't always been able to take advantage of its advances. Things like smartphones and tablets they sort of fell behind on. It's not obvious they're going to have success on things like the Internet of Things. But they are creating the next generation of computing technology, without the billions of dollars they're investing in Oregon on researchers out there. You know, we wouldn't have that continued advance; it would all be a lot slower. Uh, and you know, the other story that I, I try to tell, but I think people overlook, and you and I have talked about this, is is Leica. I think people overlook the fact that we have a. A studio that every time they make a film, it gets an Oscar nomination. Their last film, *Kubo and the Two Strings*, got two Oscar nominations. Uh, very good films made in Oregon, uh, animated movies, and the craft by which they're making it. You know that their handmade stop motion animation. You know the fact that that's being done in a, in a warehouse, also by Hillsboro Stadium. I think I think that story can't be told enough. What Intel and Leica have in common. Is they're doing it inside, kind of in secret, for different reasons. Intel doesn't want competitors to find out Leica wants to make a big splash when they announce what their film's going to be and what it's going to look like. But I, I think for that reason, maybe we overlooked that. So those are two larger organizations that that maybe get overlooked uh, to a degree in the state. Uh, among up and con- coming companies, as we talked about, startup scene has slowed down enormously. But you know companies that interest me uh, again in niches. Uh, I think the the most promising young company probably is Opal. They're doing social marketing. They work with some very large brands to help them manage their social media marketing campaigns. Uh, people they have huge client, really big name clients. And I think people feel strongly about their technology and the applicability of it. Another one that interests me is Sanrio, uh, backed by the Oregon Angel Fund. They're developing security for the Internet of Things. They're by no means the only ones doing that. They're, you know Everyone from really large companies like Intel to other startups are trying to find ways to make sure our connected refrigerators don't get hijacked. We don't have people controlling our homes. Uh, and it may or may not be possible to completely safeguard them, but uh, at least a, a degree of assurance may be possible. And Sanrio has... An interesting pedigree. Their CEO came out of Simple, the uh, online banker. Another one of their top executives came out of Tektronix. And Oregon Angel Fund has had a really good track record in the companies they invest in. Uh, that's one that's interesting to me for sure. Interesting. Also, there's still hope. <laughs> well, there will be companies in both yeah. those cases. Those are niches. You yeah. know that yeah. that um, they won't be huge, huge organizations ever. But
0: um, they they can have a real impact. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. It'd be great to maybe uh, end of this year as 2018 rolls around, we can do this again and see where we're at in Portland and Oregon. I'd love to come by again. It's great to see you. Okay, thanks.